Hello and welcome back to Advantage Betters, powered by Pinnacle, as we delve into the data behind some of the biggest tournaments tennis has got to offer and the value in Pinnacle's odds. I'm your host, Charlie Deer, and I'm joined once again by our tennis data expert, Dan Weston. Plus, for his debut uh, on Advantage Betters, we've got tennis handicapper, NBC Sports analyst, Drew Dinsick in the house. How are you doing, fellas? Nice to have you both on. Yeah, all good here. Great to be back. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, usually the uh, the French Open is with my least favorite um, okay. uh, of the slams to really kind of get into from the content side because it's usually not that interesting. <laughs> like, yeah, we, we kind of know who's going to win the men's. I mean, every year I've been doing this, it's been <laughs> Rafa Nadal or pass. And uh, this year we finally have a little bit of drama. So very excited to hear how uh, how the play season's gone for Dan and uh, and kind of talk about some of the macro environment we are right now in tennis, which is pretty interesting because you know, we're at, we're at a changing of the guard in terms of the generations here on the men's side, which is amazing. And then, uh, on the women's, uh, you know, I had expected to say, you know, nothing really interesting going on here, but, uh, you know, with the, the recent retirement of, uh, the great Iga Sviantek, uh, and the ascension of Sabalenka and Rubakina, this is going to be an interesting tournament all around. Definitely, definitely. I think, um, yeah, we, we were saying in the last 48 hours, things have got a lot, a lot more interesting. Um, if we sort of look to, for what's been going on then in the last, say, three, four weeks, and particularly, obviously, with Madrid, Alcaraz and, and Sabalenka both won the, the singles there. And as I mentioned, we're at the latter stages of Rome right now, uh, where we've had Djokovic exit early, Triontek, obviously, as, as, as Drew said, injured. Alcaraz went out early as well from that tournament. Um, if we just start with, with with you then, Dan, what have you sort of made of the last few weeks then and um, how seriously should we maybe take in these early exits from for these these big players? Well, I think I think ultimately Drew's kind of alluded to it already, and that we kind of thought it was going to be business as usual, perhaps with the absence of Nadal, uh, until the last few days when Alcaraz has, has obviously lost to Marasan in, in Rome, which was a real shocker, probably the shortest price loss of the year, I would imagine, one point zero two pre-match, um, and 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 ultimately he was completely dominant on, on clay prior prior to that. So in in the post Miami clay events, he was twenty four two in sets. So I mean that that's the level of dominance you don't see very often. Um, so I think Alcaraz was obviously going to be a pretty solid favourite prior to that that, that defeat. Um, and then obviously the women's um, we can say the same thing about Sriatek as well. Um, she won two out of the last three tournaments in in at Roland Garros, uh, and that that leg injury she picked up against Rybakina. Um, and also lost to Sablanka Madrid as well. Maybe opens the door for for that sort of odds on price to be challenged, although I do think she's still the best clay court in the field by some some distance. Yeah, yeah I can echo echo that uh, sentiment. Um my perspective on betting the outrights I mean I guess my perspective in the men's side the whole time was you got the growing sense even as recently as maybe a, or I guess even as far back as about a month ago, uh, with Nadal pulling out of the Barcelona event, you know, he's a guy that you expect, he likes to warm up. He likes to get, uh, you know, some reps on, on clay before, you know, reps before you get to the slam level. 
Um, and the fact that he was pulling out of those kind of key warm-up events was a bad sign that he was going to go. Uh, and so, you know, if you had any eyes for a longer shot price on the men's side, the time to shop was then, uh, before you got confirmation that he was out of the field and there was sort of a reshuffling of the odds here. Um, and you know, at the time before Alcaraz kind of emphatically won Madrid, um, you know, there, he, he was in like the, you know, the three, $4 range, I, I believe, uh, with Djokovic, the, the meaningful favorite. And we've seen that flip mostly because Djokovic just hasn't looked especially healthy himself. Um, and Alcaraz, of course, with the win in Madrid kind of reminded people his, about his, you know, his, his top level of, of, uh, of excellence is, is pretty clear of the rest of the contenders. Um, and so I think now, as you currently look at the, or at least as we were kind of getting to Rome and, you know, kind of warming up for the tournament, the key question was what kind of form is Djokovic going to be in? Is he going to be able to play himself into form in Rome? Um, because if he is, then his price is going to be a bet. Uh, as I still have sincere questions about Alcaraz kind of figuring it out at best of five slam level tennis. Like if, yes, he has a championship. He won U S open. I know this, <laughs> but, uh, his path there was pretty soft. Uh, you know, his most meaningful, uh, you know, comp, you know, his most meaningful match in that title run was against Yannick Sinner, another relatively inexperienced player with, you know, just high highs. And, uh, and I thought Sinner outplayed him really. Alcaraz kind of held on for dear life there and ultimately comes through. And that was basically the championship for him. And so I think he still, Alcaraz still has something to prove at best of five level. Uh, and I was kind of hoping to get some signal one way or the other about the health of Djokovic so that we could get down a good bet on him uh, before we had kind of concrete evidence that Redalton and all wasn't going to play. And, uh, and, and we didn't really get that because Djokovic, I think, you know, rightfully lost to whole Garune, uh, in one of the, I don't know, it was a good, I thought it was a pretty good match. And, uh, and so Djokovic didn't get his kind of traditional run up in the clay that you would normally expect. And so, you know, questions still exist about the fitness of his elbow, uh, and whether he's going to be able to play himself in the form, uh, in this tournament. And, you know, there's enough, the, the middle class and the men's side, is good enough that he's going to have some tough tests early. Um, but you know, he still ought to be, you know, clearly in my opinion, the class, you know, the, he, he should be the favorite over Alcaraz. I will just say, um, just on the basis of the amount of experience he has had at the best of five level. And, um, you know, it's the, the last two French opens were determined by Djokovic versus Nadal in their head to heads before we even got to the final. And I think realistically, he is the player to beat in this tournament, even though, you know, Alcaraz's highs are higher, uh, particularly in the last two, in the last year and change. Um, but yeah, the lingering elbow injury has kind of kept me from making a more sincere position there. And uh, I think, uh, you know, again, like the, the Holger Runes of the world, the Yannick Sinners of the world, um, you know, maybe even the Stefano Sispasses of the world like they can definitely take Djokovic the distance on clay. Uh, so it's definitely, it, it's a, it's a lot more wide open uh, French open men's field than uh, of any year that I've ever uh, handicapped it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So Dan, just touching on Djokovic there then. Um, I think last year was the year he, this was a tournament that he, he obviously won last year and showed that he was like coming back into form uh, this time last year, so even though Drew does say that he should be favourite, he's just sec just shy of well second second favourite right now with us. 
just shy of Alcaraz. What what are what would you say? What are the worries though for him um, in this uh, going into this tournament? Well, I think ultimately the elbow. Yeah, so he certainly hasn't addressed those concerns in his performance in these warm-up events. I think that's that's really clear. For example, on clay this season, he's 12-8 in sets, which is is really very, very poor for, for Djokovic um, compared to previous seasons. You know, he's he's traditionally been an extremely dominant player, uh, and we haven't seen that so far. I mean, he's barely won in straight sets, and, and some of the ones that he has, he's like been taken to tie breaks in a set against like, very, very mediocre opposition. And so, I mean, if you're looking at po- sort of post Miami clay tournaments or the big masters in the Barcelona 500, um, I think Alcaraz has been more impressive than, than Djokovic, but I'm not sure I could really have either of them at, at, at prices right now. So, um, Alcaraz, uh, as Drew mentioned, there's the, there's that debate about five set matches and, uh, and the longevity in a, over a very long tournament. But I also think that it's really fair to, to have those doubts about Djokovic as well. Like I said, he's won 60% of, of sets um, on clay this year. And if he does drop sets, you know, clay's, the, clay's a surface where matches are longer, points are longer than any other surface. And, and, and therefore, what, what, what he doesn't want to do is being drawn into like three-hour-plus um, early round matches. And with, if he has got a dodgy elbow, that's not going to do him any favours whatsoever. Um, and also, as, as kind of Drew mentioned as well, that the mid-level player can certainly do that. They can certainly compete over a fairly short period of time against Djokovic, maybe take him to four sets and one of those sets might be a really long set that goes to a tiebreaker or something like that. And then suddenly he's he's uh, fatiguing himself far more than he would traditionally be used to. Um, so for me, I mean, I, I, I don't think either of those, the current prices really, really entice me whatsoever. Just uh, touching back onto the WTA side of things. Swantik is our overwhelming favourite near enough every single tournament we do now. At the moment, as we record on, on Friday the 19th of May, she's a minus 120 and Sabalenka is second favourite at plus 599. Um, she obviously picked up this injury uh, against Rybakina. Um, do you feel like she... Is, is this a tournament again where she... She she could go out early because um, I think it was was it Indian Wells that she went out early as well. I think the last time we were. Yeah, she's had. A, I mean, I'll let Dan kind of give a similar answer, and I'll try to be brief here. I, she's had a fine year, uh, despite not picking up really any kind of high profile hardware. Um, the problem is, you know, I think she's only lost what five, six times. One of them by with you know withdrawal. She's not a, or one of them by um, by uh, retirement. She's not a player that retires often. And so when she retired, it was a little eye opening. Like, oh, this might be serious. But mm-hmm. you know, the the stuff I've read doesn't give me pause to where I think she, realistically, uh, you know, she's going to be under distress in this tournament. The French Open and really just slams for the women are a little less demanding physically because. They're spread out over two weeks. You get every other day to recover. It's best of three. Uh, and in general, with her seating, she should have a really, really soft week one. Um, so she's going to be there in week two. She should be give that, given the opportunity to kind of get back into you know health and fitness is is the rightful favorite. And but but truly, before we saw her lose in you know, before we saw her retire in Rome, I would have been like, I will never bet against her here 
in my lifetime, <laughs> unless there's a very good reason. Uh, and so I think you have to have a better reason than just, well, she retired last time out and maybe she's carrying an injury to to go against her here even now. Uh, the losses that we've seen her suffer so far this season have largely been at the hands of Elena Robacana, which is a little concerning. <laughs> um, Robacana is interesting in a lot of ways. And I, I think really, I, if we're really going to boil it down, this is a three-horse race between Iga, Sabalenka, and Rabakina. And I think that is going to be the operating assumption that I go into handicapping every slam for the foreseeable future. Um, Sabalenka and Rabakina have closed the gap in terms of overall ability to play tennis, frankly. And, you know, on a faster surface like the Australian Open and potentially Wimbledon, Sabalenka and Rabakina have a decent edge over Iga because their serve is so powerful. Both of their serves are, are very powerful. Um, and Rabakina, especially at a slam level, and in this may be narrative-y and this may seem disrespectful even, but she's kind of like a robot. She just doesn't really have an emotional like up and down over the balance of a match that a lot of the other women's players do. And for those reasons, she's, I think, a, a more dangerous player at the slam level, uh, as we saw in her Wimbledon final last year and her ousting of uh, Iga in Australia. And, uh, and so I think, you know, it, it's a three horse race as far as you want to handicap it. And, um, you know, draw is going to matter. For whatever it's worth, Iga ends up getting drawn into the same quarter as Rabakana. It feels like every tournament, which has been bad news for her, uh, because you know the price you're looking at right now for Iga is a great price to bet if Rabakana and Sabalenka are on the bottom and Iga's on the top. It is not a great price to bet if Rabakana ends up in Q1 with Iga and she has to defeat Rabakana on the way to a semifinal and then potentially Sabalenka in a final. Um, I don't really know what to make of the Madrid final results. And I think that's kind of where I'd like to open the door for Dan. Uh, Sabalenka beat Iga in what was the best clay match of the season so far. Uh, not just men, not just on the women's side, in my opinion, but of all of the clay matches I've seen, that was the best, I thought. And uh, the conditions I thought favored Sabalenka and maybe have kind of convinced people that she has a better chance against Iga in Roland Garros than she actually does. Um, but I don't want to dismiss that accomplishment because she was outstanding. Um, and she now has slam pedigree having, you know, coming in off of the Australian you know, open win, which was the best tennis match I've seen all year. Um, so it's it's interesting to try to break that down. And I'm just curious, do you, what, what, how much weight do you put on that specific result, Dan? And, uh, and do you think the conditions here basically make arena's chances that much less likely? Um, yeah. So I've, I've often said over the years that I'm always quite skeptical about how performances in, in Madrid, uh, uh, how much weight to attribute them in terms of, uh, dealing with Roland Garros. And as for, for listeners who aren't, aren't aware, Madrid is played at a fairly considerable altitude and conditions are a lot quicker there than they are in any other clay court event on tour, certainly the main clay court events anyway. Um, and, so I think that, that that was a little bit of a leveler for, for Sabalenka against Iga in, in that particular event. I think that that, 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 that those conditions definitely would have, would have suited Sabalenka a little more, which is obviously what you said already. I completely agree. Um, for me, though, I, mean, I, I look at this women's tournament 
and 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 I actually look at it as more of a two horse race. Really, I mean, I'd be really surprised if if um, either Swiatek or Sabalenka, as long as Swiatek is like not completely ruined with injury, do do not win this tournament. I mean, the market gives the, that that outcome about a seventy percent chance um so so that, that that's obviously uh, something to consider as well um Rabakina on clay I, I i'm still yet to be sold yes yes she's reached the semi-final here here in in rome uh however i mean we can say that Vondrasova was t- a tricky opposition but her, she hasn't exactly really beaten that many players of note so far certainly no, no one in the top 50 to get to this stage and she hadn't won three matches on clay in a row since the 2021 uh, French Open. And we have to go back to 2019 to find her, her winning a clay court um, event on on tour. Uh, and that was in, in Bucharest, where actually she you know, she barely beat anyone who was half decent. I mean, Bedosa was not the player she was then. Uh, now she then, was then. Uh, and she actually beat Patricia Maria Tig in the final. So that kind of shows you the field quality that she 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 did have in that tournament. Not particularly great. Uh, and, and so, I mean, look, just to give you some more context on that, the, her final and semi-final were against qualifiers and the f- second round was against the wildcard. So, I mean, like, you can't give anyone really much credit for that. So, I think, for me, the jury's certainly out on Rapper. Rabakina, even though she's had that historical or fairly recent historical success in in, in head to head matches against Iga, but but they were both on, on hardcore, and I think that that's um, not something that I would lose that much sleep over if if, hmm. if I find I'm weighing that. I guess uh, maybe I'm dealing with a little bit of um, kind of uh, mental damage because uh, Rabakina picked my pocket at Indian Well <laughs> and <laughs> and uh her 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 home her home stretch there where she was dominant against Iga in the semis and then backed it up with a very impressive come from behind kind of a win against Sabalenka uh you know Indian Wells is at this very slower end of the hard court range and the fact that she was able to do that and find you know find other elements of her game is just kind of I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm nervous that she's going to pick my pocket again, I guess. <laughs> and so that's maybe why I throw her in the mix. Uh, and she's, you know, what's her price right now? She's almost 14, like 13.7 right now at Pinnacle. That's, that's a big number for, and it, but it, I think it, it, it reflects what you're saying, which is that she just doesn't have a ton of success at the surface. Um, so it's, yeah, but it, you know, again, like the, that her ability to kind of keep her cool and just kind of mentally overcome, uh, you know, the challenges of the pressure in the moment are obvious. Um, and so for those reasons, she may win matches. She has no business winning <laughs> against better clay players <laughs> just on the basis of, you know, them kind of crumbling mentally. Uh, it's happened before and it'll happen again. Um, and, you know, it may happen to, you know, Sabalenka who, I mean, you know, the Rome t- or Madrid title was impressive. Her clay campaign overall has been a huge step forward. Um, and, but yeah, I, I, I need to see her perform better at Roland Garros in particular before I'll kind of buy into her being this good on what is kind of a, 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 an average to slower clay surface as opposed to Madrid, which is, as you mentioned, kind of the, the, the quicker. Yeah, definitely. I I feel like a, a switch has flicked a little bit in Sabalenka, but yeah, I think yeah, maybe over over a course of a season and long the longevity needs to sort of be there, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm looking at Sabalenka's head yeah, her her career 
record at Roland Garros, seven and six, including one win that was qualifying. Uh, I'm, or excuse me, the one loss that was qualifying. So I guess in the main draw, she's uh, she's seven and five. But the players she's defeated are you know not really anyone you would get that excited about. Um, so it's yeah, she still has a lot to prove. I think. Uh, at this particular tournament. And uh, I guess we've gone a long way to say the bet is still Iga, but <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a bummer that Sab- that, um, excuse me, that Rabakin is not the fourth seed here so that you would know certainly that she would have her own quarter. Um, and in reality, she should probably be the three seed and have a quarter on the bottom to herself. And then, then you would feel a little bit more comfortable land the current price for Iga, I think. Or at least I would. What before we properly delve into all the other all the other players and and sort of what your value plays are, one of the topics I, I mentioned to you guys that I wanted to talk about was sort of the rise in in, in these tennis mini slams that I've, I've seen as the word being banded around. Um, obviously, you have Indian Wells in Miami are are currently a fortnight, and uh, obviously Madrid and Rome are are now. Um, and I also heard that maybe even Shanghai and and Canada might be tipped to in the in a few years to come. Well, the question is sort of what are the what are the pros and cons to to this in terms of the calendar. Uh, obviously, for the players kind of thing, it's maybe the, the maybe a larger prize prize pot at the end, and obviously for the for the decision makers, it might be just better entertainment. Um, but you you might also then have a, a player that maybe. Um, losers maybe in the latter in the rounds and then they can't go and play so, uh, another tournament which which they are doing now to, to whoever wants to pick it up first what, what do you sort of make of make of this and obviously it does seem like it's something that's gonna um, have a have a legs to it so to speak um, yeah I can uh, go first here so I think this is kind of a good I think ultimately this is a good thing and I say that in the context of what Liv has done to golf, which has made the product not as good. <laughs> and I think this is trying to head off the same sort of uh, issue by giving the players opportunities to win bigger prize pools. And that's, you know, for the top, top flight talent, that's what you want. Um, you know, and, and these mini slams kind of feeling more important and having f- more participation, I think is a good thing. Um, and whatever the tour overall can do to keep it, together and you know prevent a fracturing like what we've seen in golf i think is good ultimately um but it's going to have consequences certainly um as you mentioned the participation in sort of the 500 and the 250s is going to dry up because you just can't put your body through these this much tennis that's this high level this you know, over this much of the calendar, it's just going to grind you down. Uh, you've seen that in golf to a degree with the elevated events and what that's done to some of the players and just every week getting up and trying to get, you know, get a piece of a $20 million pot. That's uh, it's, it's kind of wearing those guys down to where they're less competitive at this in the uh, majors, I, I think. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's going to have consequences for the players. It's going to have consequences for the smaller tournaments. Um, but I think whatever you can do to prevent, kind of a fracturing of the tour is important. Dan, did you want to pick it up from your side? 
yeah, yeah, sure. So, so for me, I think that I like it from a perspective of it's, it gets more players into these bigger tournaments. It gives them more opportunities to to earn big money just by winning a couple of matches that they might not have done at a challenger level. And anything that can kind of make the game more equitable in terms of you know giving the world rank 100, 120 guys a, a decent living, and then they can reinvest that in their careers. Ideally, would 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 really be be fine with me. Um, the other thing is as well is you tend to get a bit more rest with this structure so it enables even though it's best of three sets in men's as opposed to best of five in, in slam it does in, it integrate the next level of players into that kind of structure that you get more in a slam so i think that that's pretty positive in terms of them acclimatizing to that structure a little quicker as well so so for me i've got no issues with it whatsoever and, and you know, i'm pretty happy with it yeah i, I- because I see, uh, was it Daria Kasatkina came out and said she felt like a hamster in an ever-evolving uh, <laughs> will. Um, and that's sort of what the tennis calendar is like, really. But, yeah, that's what I think as well. Sort of, I think one of the things you can sort of plan your rest days around around the tournament if you know you're going to be there for a prolonged period of time. But, yeah, yeah I wanted to get your thoughts on that, guys, because obviously I know it's going to be something that we're going to see a lot more of uh, in the coming years. I hadn't even really thought about it from Dan's perspective, but he's absolutely right. Like the kind of the, the, the real, the players you really needed to address were sort of the 32 to 64 to 128, like guys in that range were really, really struggling to figure out how to make the, make it as a pro financially and go and, you know, and, and now if you, as you kind of mentioned, if you can win a couple of matches at one of these mini slams, you know, you've set yourself up now to be able to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, be more successful on tour. And that's, that's, that's important because you really, you know, you really want to try to help the bottom half of, uh, you know, 128 person field at the slams. You want those to be higher quality so that week one is, is just better matches. And this should help afford that for sure. But it's going to come at the cost of really wearing down the, the, uh, you know, the, the eight the eight to thirty two players are going to play a lot more tennis, and they're going to be in less of the smaller tournaments, and so those fields may suffer. They may lose sponsorships, and uh, it'll have consequences. But I think net net good. So if we then if we do go back into the tournament itself, French Open, as we as we were discussing, I just wanted to get if we just go and look on the ATP tournament. We obviously mentioned Alcaraz and, and Djokovic so far. Um, Holger Runa is, is the guy that's sort of making waves in this tournament um, and is the favourite with us in, for the Roma as we speak, obviously semi-finals, into the semi-finals. Um, and we have like some other players in the in the outright market, like Kasper Ruud. Uh, I think he made the French Open final last year uh, and Sitsipas made the final in 2021. Um, what, who are some of the the dangerous players outside of that top top two then who could really have a say? Well, from my perspective, um, it's, it's, it's 
certainly going to be a really interesting in the next couple of days in Rome because um, of the if we list players in the outright market, um, four of the the players ranked three to seven in the outrights for French Open are, are competing in the semi-finals of of, of Rome. Mm. So there's going to be some form of a bolter in, in, in some way, shape, or form. Daniel Medvedev is the biggest price at just over twenty fives with with the guys at Pinnacle, but yeah. you can see that if, if he was to win this tournament, that, that that's not going to be there, not going to be anywhere near there. Uh, and, and so the next couple of days are going to really dictate plenty in this sort of next tier of players in the men's tournament. Um, Stats-wise, I've gone through all the stats already. Uh, and actually, for me, um, if we're just looking at pure numbers, um, I, I, I like the player who isn't in the semifinals out of that bracket, which is Yannick Sinner. Um, however, um, he was he was uh, picked up an illness in Barcelona, withdrew from Madrid, lost to Serendolo here in Rome. So he hasn't had a really ideal ideal build up to this tournament. Um, but if he, uh, this is where something like the, the draw is so critical for a player like this, because if he can ease himself into the tournament with some really quite straightforward um, early rounds, then that gives him the opportunity to hopefully hopefully get more confidence, get 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 his level back up. Uh, and I think also with with Sinner. His return game is is better than the vast majority of other players in that sort of tier of players, and that helps with clay because he, the double the chance of double breaks in sets are so much more, uh, and the chances of winning matches in a more clinical way where you're not expending so much fatigue it, it increases as well, especially compared to some more more serve oriented players like uh, Sizapas, for example, who we, we, we see permanently his his matches are really turning on a few key points or tie breaks and stuff like that. And I think ultimately that's that's the issue with Sitsipas in terms of the best of five set Grand Slam. And, and an issue that has beset him in his career so far in slams and I think will continue to do so really unless 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 he can improve um his return points one percentages ultimately. Yeah. Uh, Dan said a lot of very, very valuable stuff there. Uh, if you want to back it up and listen to it again, um, Sinner's numbers stand out clearly above everyone. Uh, but he's only played six matches. So it's a little bit of a small sample size. Um, his return win percentage right now on clay this season is almost 50% on points. Uh, his break percentage is uh, what 45%, which is again like 5% higher than the next best player in Carlos Alcaraz, who's 39. Um, and in general, uh, he's ascent, he's still on the ascension as a player, like he's getting better every time you see him take on another uh slam, he's more dangerous, it feels like. Um, and if he was at full health and at full strength, uh, I think he would be you know, realistically should be priced in the $8-ish range. He should probably be ahead of Holger Rune. Um, Rune is the buzzy player right now because he's extremely, I, again, this maybe this is just personal preference in watching tennis. I like watching Rune play. Like he puts us together like a very, very entertaining style of tennis. Um, but at the same time, like should he be priced shorter than Casper Rude? No. Rude's been to the finals here before. He's a better, more, you know, more, more well-established player on the surface, more well-established player in slam tennis. Uh, and the gap between Rune and Rude should be virtually nil. Uh, and Rude is $19 and Rune is nine. <laughs> and that's entirely because of Rune is just a fun guy to kind of, he's the next guy you, you know, you think is going to pot potentially capture a slam and kind of get into the conversation. 
Um, and in, in, but I get, I, I could not in good conscience play rune at $9. No way. No way. That's a, that's a, that's a wild price as, as much of a fan of rune as I am. Similarly, I feel, I feel similarly about Sisypos. Sisypos at 10 to me is, is also kind of banana land. Um, Dan's correct in that if Sisypos wins Rome, which he could, should win Rome, I think he's probably your current Elo would tell you he should have the best chance of these four guys. He he could get even shorter than 10, which I think would be a mistake. Um, he's made the final before. He came very close to defeating Djokovic and winning a slam here in, in Roland Garros. He's a good clay player, but I'm definitely not seeing it in the statistics from him this year. Um, his, uh, I mean, his, uh, his return percentages are pedestrian. Uh, compared to what we've seen from him in years past, he's only breaking twenty percent, twenty seven percent of games, and uh, you know he's only winning. He's winning sub forty percent of return points. That's not going to be good enough to win in Roland Garros, and he's probably a candidate for an early exit. Um, so Sissipas to me is is an absurd price. Um, the Medvedev question is an interesting one. So we kind of teased it off the top, but we're in this generational turnover with fed retiring last year nadal presumably retiring in you know the coming calendar year he probably should have retired after he won last year's french open if we're being honest that would have been quite a way to go out on top but you know it is what it is um the uh would have been tough to retire after winning two consecutive slams but you know it, it in hindsight you know whatever he did to his body at wimbledon was not a good decision because he can't play tennis anymore um but uh, you know the the turnover. You know Djokovic is he's he's looks like he's not long for aging out. Just because he's had so much rest because he hasn't been playing in the U.S. and yet he's still dealing with the elbow issues. So there's there's signs that Djokovic is kind of on the on the cliff here and may age out uh, at some point. Um, I mean the fact that he's not an odds-on favorite in a slam where he's the only guy with more than one is, is pretty amazing. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it, it is what it is. But so, so the question is who's the next group of guys and Alcaraz clearly leads that group. I would put Sinner and Rune in kind of tier two, uh, you know, behind Alcaraz. And then, uh, I mean, the only guy that's kind of on tour that has already captured a slam that is going to be in the mix is Medvedev, in my opinion, as kind of that this next young group of three players kind of ascends. Um, I think, you know, Medvedev's potential to continue to improve on clay is it looks real. It does, this doesn't look like a, a fluky clay run. Um, he's typically just not really a guy that you have any expectation for on clay, but Mm-hmm. through six <laughs> matches this season um you know his return win percentage is of it's above 40 that's a huge that's a positive sign for him certainly uh he's not breaking quite as much as you would have hoped he's only in like the 27 and a half percent range um but his you know his serve has been among the better uh you know his hold percentages uh you know is is, is still kind of it's not quite it's not a lead it's not plus 80 it's not above 80 but it's still kind of good enough to win some some tough hard-fought matches and um and i think in general uh he's a little bit of a djokovic light uh in terms of his style of play um and so yeah i mean he, he could make a run at roland Garros given the right draw he's got a third you know third uh three seed so he's going to have a you know a quarter without Alcaraz and without Djokovic in it, which is huge. 
Um, so he could clearly make a semifinal here if he can uh, have, you know, the right, the right player in his draw, like, you know, a Rublev or even a Sissipas um, or a Rune, a Rune. Um, so it's, you know, I think Medvedev as a, uh, as a semifinalist is a fair play. Uh, I think Rude as a semifinalist would be my expectation. Um, and then, uh, you know, joke. So basically I think your top four seeds could realistically be your semifinalists here. Uh, and then the only guy that I would put in the mix outside of that is, is as uh, Dan had already kind of tipped Yannick Sinner just based on the quality we've seen from him. He could put it together here, be a factor for sure. But, um, it's going to be interesting to see if he ends up in Alcaraz's quarter. That would be kind of the, that would be kind of the dream scenario to really make, um, some serious money in this tournament because I absolutely could see Sinner taking Alcaraz out on in these conditions. Uh, and, uh, you know, that would, again, that was sort of the pivotal match that really decided the U S open last year. I think that the gap between those two players is very small generally. And it's, you know, and Alcaraz has the hardware, so he's the shiny, you know, the exciting object as opposed to Sinner, who's never really gotten it across the finish line. Uh, but I don't, I don't see a huge gap between those players at all. So uh, I really hope we get Alcaraz Sinner as your Q1 Q quarterfinal. And I think you're going to get Sinner at an awesome price. So uh, you might as well take him in the outrights market as well and, uh, and see if he can't carry that form into uh, his first his maiden title. Yeah, the other thing I want to say about Medvedev um, is that, when you compare his outright price to Tsitsipas's price, um, yeah. Medvedev's price is about two and a half times um, the the price of Tsitsipas. Yeah, yeah. For their head-to-head match tomorrow, it's not he's not far off even money. Yeah. So, so I mean, go figure. I mean, if, that, if that's not if that's not uh, an indictment of how bad value Tsitsipas is at the current market prices, I'm not quite sure what is. Great point. Well, yeah. That's, well, that's the thing. I think what you said, uh, Drew. You never really seen Medvedev as a clay court player, but he's sort of starting to come into his own now. Uh, before we sort of go on to the WTA side, is there anyone in that sort of maybe mid bracket below where Medvedev is? Uh, you've got like the likes of Zverev, Rublev, Team, Ogele, Asim, Norrie, and Corder in there. Is that are they realistic to even get to that quarterfinal, semifinal stage? Or we've obviously spoken a lot about that top bracket. Is is that just where it's going to come from? Uh, from, from my perspective, um, I don't see Zverev as, as, as a realistic challenger here. His numbers, um, you know, about 102, 103% service return points won uh, combined uh, in 2023 across all surfaces. And it's very similar on clay in the last 12 months as well. That's kind of like top 20, top 25 level, really. It's, that's, that's nowhere near the level that he's going to need to 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 win it or, or even get towards the sort of the, the semifinals of Roland Garros. 37% return points won on all surfaces this year is another red flag for him. Uh, that's that's not dissimilar to Sitsipas's numbers, and we've already spoken about the issues that stem from that. Um, uh, he was also easily beaten by Alcaraz and Medvedev recently. So I think he, Zverev has has a real a real gap between him and the leading players on tour right now. So I don't I don't see him as, as someone who who I, I would expect to to provide a real threat to the best players in this field. Um, Rublev probably a little bit more. Um, I, I would have more hopes for Rublev than, than Zverev, which is quite strange that, 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 that he's actually marginally bigger priced in the outright market. Um, obviously won Monte Carlo, but has, has struggled a little bit subsequently. But I think he 
definitely has exhibited a higher ceiling um, on on the surface and just generally this season than, than Zverev has. So, so I, 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 at prices, I prefer Rublev over Zverev. Um, the, as far as everything you mentioned, Charlie, team as well. I think you you you'll be better off throwing your money down a drain than the backing team right now to win any any <laughs> kind of major tournament. Uh, team got in thanks to uh, Nadal withdrawing, by the way. <laughs> he would have had to qualify were it not for, uh, you know, that spot opening up. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, of the of that tier, you have to circle Rublev based on the numbers from this season on clay in particular. But at the same time, he is 0-7 lifetime at the quarterfinal stage in a slam. To me, that's a mental mm-hmm. hurdle that I need to see him clear before i put money on him to win anything uh and especially because he's gonna get he's gonna get a tough draw he's your he's your sixth seed which means he's gonna have to take out one of the top four guys now i guess you know if he ends up in if he ends up in casper Ruud's draw for whatever reason and you know that that's your quarterfinal that should be a pretty competitive match and you know he's, he's probably gonna go off close to evens in that type of uh a head-to-head just based on what we've seen from him this year um but uh, but yeah, he's going to be. He needs to. He needs to clear the hurdle for me before I, I get involved financially. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's but he's you know he's he's a player that produces at a higher level than the market respects his from a price standpoint. So you know, you're going to find value to bet on him in a match uh, likely at this tournament. Um, the guys down the board who are really standing out and have like a reasonable kind of sample size. Um, this cycle on clay, uh, Lorenzo Musetti stands out. Uh, Kekmanovic again, really another really solid clay campaign from him. Um, Jiri Lacheka stands out. Uh, however you pronounce Jiri's last name, the Czech player. Um, Dusan Lajevic, his results stand out. Uh, and that that's come out of absolutely nowhere. Like he's 30 something, you know, journeyman. All of a sudden, he's having his best clay swing uh, that I can remember. Has been absolutely wild to see. Uh, and then uh, the Spaniard, who's a little bit of a, kind of a, he's a very um, uh, weird price point always in any given match is uh, uh, Burnaby Zapata Morales. Um, he's right now top four in uh, break percentage on clay this season. He's top six or seven in uh return points one percentage which is crazy uh, across all players he's played 20 matches so he's this is not small sample size stuff um and uh you know he's going to be an interesting one to kind of watch where he lands in the draw because he could ruin somebody's french open for sure nice before anything else you wanted to mention dan before we move on to the women's door no, I don't think so. I, I I just generally think that the 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 outright market really has has it in terms of the the top few in t- in the order of it is is reasonably accurate, and in terms of the the winner coming from those players, it's, it's extremely likely. Um, I just don't see anyone out of sort of the top seven in the market really really um, getting to the to the latter stages, particularly the final. Um, and, but if you are minded to, to find 
uh, an underdog from somewhere. I, I would definitely recommend looking at players who have really high ceilings. So someone who could, uh, for example, put put a run of matches together. So so I, I wouldn't be looking at a journeyman. I would be looking at someone who's who's clearly sort of shown that the if the conditions are right and they're mentally on it, they they could. I mean, obviously, it's not 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 for this tournament. But you look at someone like Wimbledon, and you think, think Nick Kyrgios would be a really good example of that type of player, a kind of a guy who could play lights out for two weeks and somehow get get to the latter stages. Whereas, yeah, there's not that many players in the field who could do that. But I probably. Would, would focus on say younger player with a high ceiling who you know might catch the market a bit by surprise when you think of uh, what you've seen from a guy like taylor fritz so far this year so so for me it's uh, probably worries me a little bit on, on clay but but on yeah i definitely think that, that, that he's had a good he's good year and, and he's someone who, who definitely could fall into that kind of bracket a little bit Ketchmanovic is someone who you mentioned drew i think that's an interesting player for sure um so so there's there's those or even like an Ojo Aliasim, who's who's a, I mean, if you're off for me, he's the same price as team, and I mean, like I, that's just nuts in my view. Um, so someone who who can beat the good players on their day would be someone that, that I would focus on, or, or Mazzetti, who's, who's who looks like he's on an upward curve. Yeah, Mazzetti, I, I strong agree. So it's been a weird year for the men's tour on clay, at least the swing. Uh, it's been sort of the year of the journeyman, the Dusan Lajeviches, the the Jan Lenny Struffs, uh, even Yannick Hoffman. Like these guys are not guys that you expect to see in you know the later stages of a of a one thousand know, Masters one thousand type of event. So. It's been weird. Uh, that may, but I, 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 the sentiment you're, you're, uh, you're spinning, I think is 100% correct, which is uh, in best of five, if you're going to get an upset, it's going to have to be someone who has the high ceiling, not somebody who has the, the, you know, the, the high floor. Right. So if we, yeah, if we do go into the, to the women's side of things now, we've obviously mentioned that, that, that top three that uh, we don't doubt we're going to see a winner past M3, but, um, there's obviously other players that on their day could um, really shake things up. I see the uh, uh, from from Madrid and Rome, Veronica Kudermetova has sort of made back-to-back semi-finals, um, so that she should sort of have a uh, her morale should be very uh, very good going to this one. Um, and then just under that top three, you've got Krychakova, who's a major winner, and Ostapenko and and, and Coco Goff, and even Paula Badosa, who's Obviously, not had a, a great year for many different reasons, but showed a, showed a little bit better of of her making in 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 Rome before she went out to Ostapenko. Um, where do you feel under that top three could the the, the sort of the danger come from? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it all, so tough. I mean, the data is really, really, really m- messy. Um, because everybody is sort of small sample size on clay this season. Um, you only have four women who have played double digit matches on clay in 2023. That's kind of strange, (laughs) honestly. Uh, and so just looking at raw data, um, you know, there's, there are a handful of, uh, of names that stand out, um, that, uh, but you know, I feel like there's a, there's a quarterfinal, there's a semifinalist every year on the women's draft who comes out of absolutely nowhere. 
um, sometimes two. <laughs> so I am always much more mind open to the absurd happening in the women's draw. And, and, you know, best of best of three tennis affords that as well, obviously, right? The likelihood that a long price comes in because somebody catches fire and, you know, runs through, uh, you know, runs through a couple of good players. Like that's, that's entirely uh, in the cards on the women's side. Um, the names that stand out at the top of the break percentage charts this season are really, really tough to get behind. I don't, I don't, I, Dan's probably looking at it. So I almost, I don't even want to ask him, but can you, Dan, guess who the, um, the number one break percent player on clay this calendar year is on the women's draw seven well, matches I'm, played. Yeah. Well, so I've, I've got data on kind of like the top 20 contenders. So that was kind of pre, I, something I pre-prepared for the, for the pod, <laughs> Um, I, 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 and ultimately, because of the fact that, that, that you're posing the question, I'm sure that the person <laughs> who, 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 uh, who has this record is not Iga Swiatek. <laughs> no, it's not. Iga's, uh, Iga's a little down the board, not so far down that it's concerning. But the number one break percentage on Clay this season, she's got a uh, she's breaking in uh, 52% uh, of return games uh, is Elisabetta. Kokio Reto of Italy. She is currently the 45th ranked player in the world. And I think she won San Luis Potosi 125. That may have been where she racked a lot of this up against kind of journey women. Um, only beat Sarah Rani among like top 100 players there who is 99th and, and, and not ascending. Um, so it's, you know, this is a little, little bit of a messy data set here. But uh, the number two break percentage this season so far, uh, Elise Mertens. Um, who's not going to, you know, she's not going to get anyone that excited uh, in terms of like a price, uh, you know, in terms of like a, um, a name, uh, but her price is way, 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 way down this board, uh, which is surprising because she's very consistently good at, and, and can break uh, on clay. Is she even listed? <laughs> I'm looking, yeah, I'm just looking now. I, I, I don't think we uh, have a price on her. I don't, I don't, I don't think she's priced up. So, um, we'll have to ask the traders for a price on Mertens and a price yeah. on, uh, what was the other one? Elisabetta Coca. You know what? Thank you. With her, Coca Choretto. Do you know what, right? A few years back, I really thought she was going to have a big future in women's tennis. So if we look at her her numbers from 2019, when she was like 18 years old, she was 30 and 9 on ITF level with great return numbers, sort of broke opponents more than they held in that season. And she had injuries and she just never really kind of kicked on. And and there's a few players who you definitely think that they have that underlying ceiling that if they kind of could put it all together, you know, someone like a Clara Towson who probably didn't develop in quite the way that I expected her to either so far, um, could 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 certainly cause some shocks. I mean, what quarterfinals and beyond is probably a stretch too far, but but, but certainly could win a, an underdog price against a, a, a higher profile opponent. Uh, you know, Coccioretto, she she took a set off Paula Bedosa in, in Madrid yeah. and Yeah, that was impressive. She's she reached a final in Hobart on hard court as well in January. So so there, there's kind of some evidence to suggest that this is not a fluke. 
I think. Uh, and and I think that's a really astute point that, that Drew's made in terms of picking out a player who could at least do some damage to some seeds in this tournament. Yeah. So we're sort of suggesting it's not really going to come out of that top three. Um, and I, I guess I can kind of run down the board past the top three and give you kind of ones that I immediately cross off at price. Um, Bar- Barbara uh, Krachikova, uh mm-hmm. at 19 is a cross off for me. She showed some amazing form earlier this season, but it's completely, completely fallen apart for her of late. She did not continue to ascend through the clay swing in a way that, a you know, a, 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 a true contender should. And her price is largely because she is a former champion here. So people think she could do it again. Uh, I would say the opposite of Yelena Ostapenko. She is ascending, but it looks like she's firing all her bullets this week in Rome. Uh, she could win this title in Rome and she could get even shorter, but, uh, you know, she's also very mercurial and, uh, realistically, just as likely lose in round one as win the tournament. So, uh, not going to bet Ostapenko, even though if I could have gotten her at like fifty to one, that would have been fun. But she's already that that price is already gone. So, uh, for you know, I think you have to kind of pass there. Uh, Coco Goff has taken an enormous step backwards this season. Uh, she is an easy cross off for me. Uh, no way is, is am I seeing a mentality of I'm ready to win my first slam. Um, Paul Bedosa has played a lot better this year, but she's a cross off at price in the 23 range. Uh, I don't think she has the elite stuff that can get past any of the top three in this tournament. Um, some Ons Jabor is a very, very emotionally sad story for me because I had her at incredible prices for Wimbledon last year. And that was her chance at her slam. And it's now feels like she's priced completely uh, upside down from the form we're seeing from her in 2023 as she's dealing with so many injuries. So she's a cross off. Jess Pagula is a cross off at 30. Maria Sacri is a cross off at 30. Carol Garcia has had a weird year. <laughs> she at one point looked like the best, uh, second best player on tour and now can't seem to put two matches back to back that are anywhere close to quality enough to uh, to contend for a slam. So she's a cross off. BB Andreescu, similarly injury risk, cross off at 35. Kudermatova, I don't think you can cross off. Kasatkina, you can. Benchich, you can. Anasimova, you can. Kvitova, you can. Uh, Zheng Shenwen is interesting, but hasn't taken a step forward this season. Von Drusova is a cross off. Pliskova is a cross off. Azarenk is a cross off. Daniel Collins shouldn't be on this list. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's no way close to fifty five. Her clay performances have been dreadful. Um, Madison Keys, you might get an interesting quarter price on her. She's pretty decent. Uh, Lila Fernandez is a cross off. Sam Sonova's amazing player, but not on clay. She's a cross off. Contavite similarly can't get involved. She could lose in round one. Uh, Martina Trevisan quarterfinalist last year or semifinalist? I can't remember. I think she made the semis last year and her numbers on clay, she has backed up what was a very impressive season from her last year. She, Trevisan is the third, number three after uh, Elisabetta and Elise uh, in terms of break percentage this year on clay, although it's only in four matches. Uh, so, you know, at a hundred to one, there's worse bets in the world. Um is Angelique Kerber back from her maternity leave? <laughs> I don't think she's playing, is she? I would take her off the board. 
And what Drew said is is so true. I I, I looked at when I was preparing for for all of this and having a good, really good look through the outright market, and you're just thinking there's so many question marks over pretty much everyone that isn't at the top of the market. Yeah. Injury doubts left, right, and centre. Ability doubts left, right, and centre. And the amount of times I, I went through the 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 list of players uh, from uh, yeah, their results through the season and I'm writing the same note every time hasn't won more than two matches in a row for the last three months or something like that yeah. I mean like, it's incredible and there's just no consistency in this next tier of, of WTA players at all and I think that they're also um, Drew you mentioned about uh, Coca Golf um, and, and Caroline Garcia particularly and I think mean reversion has, has got to those players I think golf, yeah. golf's percentage was never in line with her underlying data mean re- mean reversion uh, and Garcia I mean I mean yeah Andy Murray tipped her up to be a number one about 10 years ago but until the last sort of six months of 2022 we, we, there was no evidence that she was ever going to be that player and, and you know is that just a really random six months of good form and, and, and which is impossible to stay, sustain in the future I think at the moment you would say possibly yeah you see uh, one of the other markets we've got up is Shriontek versus the field and she's well, it's min- minus one twenty, and, and the field <laughs> is plus one hundred three. So, yeah, we, we, I, we have yeah. at, at the top, but um, yeah, as you say. I, yeah, I think uh, I think the strategy for betting the women's outrights is you hover your you have you have your ega slip loaded. Uh, watching the draw, and as soon as uh, Rabakana is drawn into the bottom fire <laughs> that's that's uh that's kind of the i think the right way to play this uh before we sort of wrap up is there anything else you guys wanted to mention or anything that we haven't we haven't spoke about yet we haven't really talked about just in general outright strategy and i mean everybody plays this a different way um and uh you know i think i i tend <clears throat> i tend to try to only really play into outright markets when you have an imbalanced draw um, I assume, you know, outside of like trying to capture prices long before they mature into correct prices, like the clay swing is so long time frame wise that realistically this market is good. <laughs> like these numbers we're looking at at penny right now, like it may sound like we're talking about them, like they're not, you know, pretty well sharp, you know, pretty well beaten into, uh, cro- you know, close to correct price, uh, but they are like, these are, these are good prices. And I think the only really are going to catch huge value once you see the draw and there's a huge imbalance. Um, and with the way that the seating is coming into this tournament, that's just not going to happen. Um, Iga and Sabalenka are going to be on opposite halves. Uh, Carlos and Djokovic are going to be on opposite halves. So you're not really going to ever, you're not going to catch a huge imbalance as far as I can tell you. Um, So for that reason, like if you fancy a longer shot playing them in the quarters pool or trying to bet them match by match, or just in the case of like a Yannick Sinner, if he's in a otherwise weak first quarter with Carlos Alcaraz, like you're going to get a good price on Sinner versus Alcaraz head to head. And that'll be a decent bet. Uh, If, uh, if a guy like Holger Rune is drawn into a quarter with Djokovic, well, as we know, he's got the goods to give Djokovic a, a scare. So, um, you know, you're going to get a good price on him pre-match. And, uh, you know, I think realistically, Djokovic is still, in my opinion, the pick for the men's just based on, you know, 
as two weeks go on, he's going to get stronger and stronger. I don't realistically think he's likely to lose in week one. Uh, and you know, he's going to have a mental advantage over all the rest of the players he'll play in week two outside of maybe Alcaraz, who seems to be just a psycho. Um, and so I, I, I think waiting and, you know, Djokovic always lets the match come to him, particularly on clay. Like he's never really trying to go out there and fire, fire, fire. And, uh, in the first set, he wants to save some of his best stuff for the third and the fourth, uh, and, you know, wins a lot of his clay matches three, one, um, in a best of five setting. And so I think realistically, you're going to get a lot of these up and comers coming at him early. He's going to let the match come to him. And so, uh, you know, trying to capture in play bets on Djokovic uh, when he's up against sort of this, this, uh, this next class, uh, you know, when he's up against a Rune in the quarterfinal, and then he's up against a, a rude in a semifinal and then up against an Alcaraz in the final, potentially. I think all three of those matches to me set up for good in-play trading where you can get the dog price pre-match and then get a good price on Djokovic if he goes down, uh, loses the first set or even the first two sets as we saw when he was up against Sissipas in the finals. Uh, That was a good bet a couple years ago there. So um, yeah, I mean, ultimately I think he's, going to win his second slam of the year. Uh, and, uh, I think, uh, if you look down the board at the Wimbledon prices, uh, his, you know, assuming that he, you know, nothing, he doesn't suffer uh, more serious injury to his elbow, which, uh, you know, is always realistic. I think his, his Wimbledon price is going to evaporate. Yeah. And, and Dan, any final things from you maybe to do with maybe how the, how the court's going to play as well? Yeah, so so from from my perspective, I think the only thing we haven't really mentioned a little bit is sort of the the pre match pricing and how we might go about about looking for some value in that respect. I think that the outright markets, as as Drew says, are pretty pretty well matured. Um, I certainly think that that real realistically would be. A, a, a huge shock for me if if, if um, anyone outside the top seven in the men's outrights did, didn't didn't uh, you know, if they won the title or even got to the final. Um, and in the women's, I think that unless Swiatek is is really badly injured, then I think that ultimately it would it would be a real surprise if the the top two or three in the market didn't didn't uh, didn't dominate the field as well. And and so. With that in mind, I mean, we've just spoken about the women's field and how you can kind of draw a line through the vast majority of the, the contenders. Finding some pre-match value, I think, is going to be one of the, the biggest ways that you can make some money in this tournament. Looking at some players who who have really, really good clay data, maybe the clay court specialist, Trevor Sun is one that, that Drew mentioned earlier, a good example. If they're matching up against, you know, a top 20 player who's not that great on clay, you might get some pretty nice prices out about some yeah. of these players. Uh, and that that's the sort of angles that I would look at a lot more. So find players who are good on clay, have high ceilings, and... Uh, underdog, underdog prices or potential, you know, pick them, pick them kind of prices or f- slightly false, slightly false underdogs. Those sort of things, I think, uh, are um, pretty useful tools in, in your armory for, for this particular tournament, given the fact that there doesn't seem to be a great deal of value in the outrights. Love it. Love it. Nice little bits and nuggets at the end there, fellas. Um, if that's everything, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up for today's show. Just like to face that. Thanks once again to Dan and Drew. I'll leave the, the Twitter handles in the description if you want to follow. Keep across all their latest content. Uh, and I know Dan's got a few French Open previews to come over the next yep. few days. Uh, so that yes. will be up on Pinnacle 
betting resources page and like to think we'll be back ahead of, of the Wimbledon Championships where Drew says he, he's ready for the <laughs> uh, yeah grass court season already um, and yeah as I say I, hopefully I might even have a few things to say after watching a few, few of the plays at Queen so uh, yeah Queen's um, is great fun good tournament yeah, yeah. yeah the tour doesn't stop and it keeps going yeah um, just finally, yeah, all odds that we, we did mention are, are correct at the time of recording. Please gamble responsibly and, and thanks for listening to Advantage Betters. Take care.